Beatles have been part of the movie-making business since the very beginning. In 1905, a certain dog called Rover was the star in the short film Rescued by Rover, directed by Cecil Hepworth and Lewis Fitzhammond. The film is famous for many reasons. It was the first time a British film truly tried to tell a story and not just be an amusing novelty. And it was the first film with an animal star, Hepsworth's dog Blair, who played Rover, a dog that rescues a baby from a sinister kidnapper. It was also the first time actors actually got paid for playing a part in a film, but poor little Blair, well, he didn't get paid at all as far as we know. It's extra cruel if you think of the fact that he, just like the human actors, had to shoot the film twice, because the film was such a success that when they produced the 400 copies of it, the negative wore out twice, so they had to reshoot the entire film twice. Rover was a star, and he was followed by many more dog stars, Rin Tin Tin, Lassie, Asta, Toto, just to name a few, as well as other animal stars. And they all had one thing in common. They were real. Yes, sometimes they were played by several different animal actors, but they were real living animals. And if an animal had to do something really risky, well, then that poor animal had to do it for real. Especially horses had a rough time as film stars in the early years of cinema history. To make horses fall in westerns and battle scenes, the filmmakers used trip wires so that the poor horses fell over and the stuntman could do his thing flying through the air, while the poor horse was either hospitalized or simply killed off because of its injuries. It's rumored that when they shot the classic Earl Flynn flick, The Charge of the Light Brigade in 1939, over 20 horses were killed by tripwires. Nowadays we don't have to harm or put animals at risk when we shoot movies. Thanks to VFX and animation, we can create any amazing stunt with digital animals instead. Much more humane. And let's face it. Digital animal actors are much easier to direct than real animal actors. I bet that unpaid dog Blair, who played Rover in 1905, would have been much better as a digital asset. Well, a better actor, at least. But how do you create a digital animal? How do you make it believable? Well, let's find out. Because today, the yellow brick road is filled with CG animals. Hello everybody, I'm Nils Lagergren and this is of course The Yellow Brick Road, our friendly little podcast about movies, games and VFX. Yes, today we're going to talk about animals, digital animals, how to create them and how to make them believable. And here to shed some light on this topic are three experts from Goodbye Cancer Studios in Stockholm. Senior character artist Magnus Eriksson, rigging TD Stephanie Holder and lead character FX TD Ludvig Eliasson. Nice to have you here. We're talking... Uh, over the internet, as they say, <laughs> because of this pandemic, obviously. Uh, none of you have been here at Yellowbrook Road before, so let's start with the usual introductions. Stephanie, le- let's start with you. How did you find your way into this lovely business? Hi. Um, okay. Well, first, thank you for having me. Um, Pleasure. The way I found myself <laughs> into this industry is, um, as a student, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I went to an uh, 
exhibition for students to find out what you want to do. And there was this um, this university that uh, allowed you to study and get a degree in uh, games, art and animation. Mm. Um, so I immediately fell in love with it and was like, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So uh, I went to the university. I studied there. Um, afterwards, I worked at the university as something that's called a supervisor, basically being a tutor and going also on exhibitions and getting other students to come to the school. Um, and after that, I applied for a job. And uh, two and a half years ago, I got hired by GBK. Hmm. And now I'm here. <laughs> Lovely to have you here. <laughs> and you, Ludwig? Yeah, well, uh, like most other people, I, I guess I kind of got into this by accident. Uh, but throughout my, my school years, I kind of went back and forth between uh, technical and uh, artistic educations. I was pretty convinced I was going to go into games because that's one of my huge passions in life, I suppose. Mm. Uh, and then just by another accident, I got into an internship at a big VFX studio. And from there on out, I just kind of landed in this industry. Then I went to an internship at the good old Fido at the end of my university studies. And that got me into Goodbye Kansas eventually, uh, where I've been at for four years now, I think. That's great. And speaking of Fido or Fido, one of the studios that turned into Goodbye Kansas, when I started there over 10 years ago, you, Magnus, were already a senior <laughs> employee at the company, a veteran. How did it all begin for you? What was your background? Kind of similar. Uh, I was actually studying to go into games. Then I was contacted by a friend who was working at Fido at the time who said that they were doing Sweden's first vampire movie, Frostbitten. And uh -huh. uh, they needed someone who uh, could work on doing a full CG monster vampire. And uh, at the time, ZBrush 2 had just come out and was not already an industry standard. So, um, and I had been working with that and learning that. So uh, that made that me an obvious choice for them to bring in. Uh, <laughs> so I came and worked on that, which was really fun, and then mm. uh, continued there, uh, got stuck there, basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> second job was making a small bag of uh, coal briquettes. <laughs> so not as much fun as doing a full <laughs> monster vampire. Uh, and then... We started doing more and more uh, CG animals was, uh, for many years a big part of the work I was doing. Yeah, you've done lots of animals in your years. Uh, so, so let's talk about CG animals. We, we have discussed some creatures at Yellowbrick Road before, like insects and dinosaurs. But, but we never talked about how we create the CG animals and it's a complicated process of course and I assume it starts with modeling. Uh, Magnus let's take a fresh example like uh, one of the stags that Goodbye Kansas created for the second season of the Sky drama series of Discovery Witches. Uh, could you describe the start of the process of creating a CG animal like that stag? Yes so I mean the first part is, as always, when you're making a real-life animal to find as many good references, references as you can. Uh, mm. And uh, 
it's always nice when you're making a real animal to find some references that are uh, specific. When you're looking at an animal, it's easy to just like, oh, here's 40 different stags. And they mm. all look slightly different. So it's nice to have like, well, we're, we want to look at this specific stag and this uh, specific creature. Uh, and then it's, uh, you know, you, you start working on the model. Since this is a creature we know, the anatomy of, we can make sure we block out the major feature of it. We don't have to uh, work on it as loosely as we might as when we are working on something that's uh, totally made up. Uh, mm. We know that it has four legs, it has a head, it doesn't it, it doesn't have two heads, it doesn't have, no. you don't have to worry about that. Where, where did you find that exact stag that you used as main reference for that? Uh, well, it's, uh, it's mainly uh, Google searches. <laughs> A lot of time. <laughs> Anything you want to find, you yeah, you write, can, write you write There's lots of Googling. <laughs> uh, yes, with the stag for uh, Discovery of Witches, that was a continuation of a of an older asset. That's actually an asset that has been updated and tweaked and modified over the years to suit different projects. Oh, yeah. yeah, so I think we we probably we got some materials from the client of like, hey, this is a stag we want to, this is what we want from the stag. And then we worked on it from there. Uh, mm. But um, yeah, I think the initial one, we actually had some pictures from Skansen uh, actually. Oh yeah, the, so we went there. zoo in Stockholm. Yes. Uh, but, but do you need to? I, I guess you need to have like, like a, a good knowledge of anatomy uh, to be a sculpture modeler like this. Yes, uh, that is a big part of uh, working with uh, animals, especially furry animals like a stag, where you don't see mm. as much of the anatomy when you're looking at the pictures. So you don't see the the anatomy as much as like if you're looking at well a human or something a naked human you would see the anatomy and you could just model what you see but when you're looking at a furry animal you would need to subtract the fur and then figure out what am i what is the fur showing me <laughs> that yeah, uh, yeah that i can then combine with my anatomy anatomy knowledge to create the uh, the base so to speak I remember you you modeled a bear uh, many years ago, uh, a polar bear, I think it was, and, and and it must be very tricky to know how does a bear look without fur. Yes, uh, yes, and if you find images of a bear without fur, it looks really weird. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> you, you, it's very hard to see that as being the bear with fur. Uh, no. And uh, there's a lot of skin flap that you won't see when you have the fur on. And that is also something you need to take into consideration when you're working on it. Because if yeah. you model every single little fold in the skin, that will introduce mm. problems for the fur. Because it's still uh, a digital ah, fur. Yeah. Uh, so you need to balance the realism because you don't want to do something that's not based on anatomy and not based on the true life 
forms, but at the same time, you don't want to put in something that you then have to undo in the fur because it produces something. No, no, exactly. So it's a balance there between what you know should be there and what needs to be there. So, so these problems that you describe, uh, is it so that, that you, Ludwig, are involved already at, in the modeling stage to like discuss things like flappy skin, for example? Or Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say that, uh, especially for CG animals, the communication between all of our three different departments is, is kind of vital, even at a concepting stage, because mm. uh, adding a lot, of, a lot of physical traits and a lot of accurate uh, technologies can exponentially increase uh, the amount of work you have to do to to even get the asset through production yeah uh, so these these decisions and these weighings that you do between uh, technical complexity and physical accuracy uh, are relevant for all uh, all departments uh, already at a concepting phase yeah for sure uh, I mean, a, a bear and a stag, uh, they're real animals, they exist. Uh, and Magnus, you, you have modeled both existing animals and extinct animals, like, like for a bunch of David Attenborough productions. And you have created totally made-up imaginary beasts, like that uh, vampire monster you talked about. What's the funniest to work with? To come up with something that doesn't exist or to create a perfect copy of an existing animal? Uh, it, I think it's it's all fun uh, in its own way. Uh, it, uh, I mean, I think initially it can be more fun when you're working with something that doesn't exist, especially if you are when it's in the concepting phase and you're just like, let's make something cool up. Mm. But I think probably the the thing that still the most fun is actually, you know, the kind of the work we've, we've done with Attenborough and you know, working with something that has existed. So we know that this should be a real animal. So we need to make sure that everything looks really real. And mm. but it's still, we still need to figure out what the anatomy was, what how things worked. It's not just a question yeah. of like, look at this picture and try to copy it as closely as possible. Um, mm. So there is like a creative, I mean, even when you're working on something and trying to copy it perfectly, that is still a creative work. But uh, yeah. figuring things out and solving things out and doing that is, I think, really fun. And because when you're doing something that really, really needs to be real, there is a sub subtlety to the forms that when you're doing something that's totally made up and the goal is let's make something cool, you it tends to easily get lost uh, mm. because you're more interested in let's make it look cool at a glance than, well, this tendon needs to be correct. And I, yeah. I really enjoy the, like having that subtle touch to my work and that is artists who have that in their work is the ones I appreciate the most. Hmm. So, so let's get back to the stag. Uh, so now we have a 3D sculpture of the stag, a 3D model, but, but it's still a rigid sculpture. It can't move. And, and, and this is when you, Stephanie, step in uh, to give it 
a digital skeleton. I always say that when I try to explain it to people. But but in honesty, I don't really know at all what it's about. So so <laughs> how how does that process work, Stephanie? Okay. Uh so the way that I usually explain it to my parents or family friends who have no idea about 3D is uh, I explain that first there is this, the model done, which Magnus in this case does. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you said, it's a rigid sculpture and it can't move. So I add joints and bones into the model, um, basically trying to replicate the skeleton Mm. ish and uh, the next step I do is called skinning sounds very brutal Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but it's something actually very creative Um, this skinning process is assigning the geometry to the joints that I just created Mm. which means if I for example created a shoulder joint I want to now tell the geometry which part of it is supposed to move with this joint so that if I turn the joint, it doesn't, for example, move my leg. It is supposed to move only the shoulder part. Mm. Uh, And that is basically the skinning. And uh, when the entire skeleton is set up and when the skinning is done, that is when the next step comes in, um, which is building controllers. Uh, I usually explain that by a puppeteer, for example. Like mm. a puppeteer would never touch the puppet itself to move it around. Uh, they have the, I don't even know what it's called, the strings attached yeah, to yeah. their control to move the puppet. And that is basically what I build as well, to have controls that are easily accessed for the animator later on, that they can then control uh, the rig and then the model um, yeah that's do, basically the process well it's very well explained uh, do you have a, in this case with a stag do you have a generic four-legged animation rig that you can build on or do you have to create it from scratch every time uh, yes and no uh, we have <laughs> <laughs> yes so we here at GBK we are trying to build uh, templates mm. for all different kinds of rigs that we could possibly come up with. In the case of uh, quadrupeds, which is four-legged creatures, Mm. we actually have several because um, there are different foot morphologies (laughs) um, for different animals. And they are called plantigrade, for example, for humans that are like plant their foot (laughs) on Mm. the ground. Then there are digitigrades, which are, for example, cats and dogs. They walk on their toes, which require a completely different setup. Ah. Then there are so-called unguli grades or semi-digity grades, which is like a mix of plantigrade and um, uh, yeah, plant uh, plantigrade and uh, digity grade. And those are unguli grade basically means hooved creature, ah. and that in that case is is a, a stag, for example. Yes, so that's basically a template we used. Um, our Unguligrade template is actually a horse. Uh, so we would bring in the template that we have and then fit it into the model. Hmm. So it's, yes, um, building it from a template and 
yes also from scratch because it's not exactly <laughs> the same. So yes and no. And, and what, what softwares do you use when you do this? Uh, we're using Maya for rigging um, since the animation is also done in Maya. Um, so tailoring it for the same thing. Mm. Some deformations we're trying to get into Houdini, um, which is basically one step further from skinning, like uh, additional deformation on the geometry that is not able to be achieved only by skinning. Mm. Um, but Ludwig probably knows more about that <laughs> than I do. <laughs> but yeah, the basic basically we're staying in Maya for now. I mean, re references is always good, of course, like when Magnus sculpts an animal. And, and I've spoken to animators tell me that they look at reference videos of animals before they start to animate the animal. But do, do you also look at reference films to create the right kind of rig for them? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Mm. Um, also in creating uh, the skeleton, we look a lot at anatomical references. Yeah, yeah. you need to know your anatomy too. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, the first step, what I would do if I started working on a creature that I haven't before, is go into anatomical uh, research, basically. Uh, we have several books for creature anatomy, where just the skeleton is shown, where what is positioned, because that is the first step that I have to do, place the skeleton correctly, place the joints in a place where the rotation of a joint would happen. Um, for then later on deformation for skinning, for example, mm. I would also look on actual videos where I can see the skin moving when something, uh, when an animal is moving. So yeah, definitely, it's a, it's a mix of anatomical research and videos of uh, real life creatures to get the movement and the deformation of the model as close as possible. Mm. What's the most complicated animal? or character that you ever have rigged? That's easy, birds. Yeah. Birds are by far the most uh, complex thing to build because of their wings. Oh. The wings have so different forms they can have. If you look at a bird just with your normal eye, if they have the wings stretched out, you can see each of the feathers lined out in like a plane, like mm. as if it was one geometry. And then if they fold their wing, they seeming move into the body as if it was one aerodynamic shape mm. um, and that is that's two completely different shapes um, which is very difficult to move from one to another with the rig so there's a lot of work that needs to be done to have a realistic bird realistic feather movements um, since each feather also needs work and love I want my bird I can get you a bird, I can get you ten birds. I want my bird. And there are a lot of feathers on a bird. <laughs> yeah. So birds are by far the most complicated, but also one of the most fun things to rig. Hmm. Uh, so in, in your process, do you work uh, closely together with Ludwig also? Yes. Uh, I work closely with modelers, CFX people, in this case Ludwig, and Magnus, and also with animators, um, because I can't start before I get a model, and the animator can't start before they get a rig. Mm. But also, I can only assume so far what the animator needs. So I first rig up 
all the things that I think the animator needs. And then it's from then on, it is a dialogue where the animator comes to me uh, and tells me what they need. And the same thing goes for Ludwig, for example, for CFX. Mm. They can look at the stuff, what I do, and say like, hey, um, can we also have it move like this? This is not something we would do in CFX. Can this be done in the rig? Or don't bother trying to get this deformation done in the rig. We'll take over in CFX. So it's always a dialogue. And it also goes back to modeling. For example, if I am asked by the animator to get a specific shape in mm. um, via, for example, a blend shape, because it's a deformation I can't get otherwise, uh, I would go back to Magnus and say, like, hey, can you make me this wonderful shape that I need and then implement it in the rig. So there is a linear process in the beginning because, as I said, I can't start mm -hmm. before I have the model. Animation can't start before they have a rig. But after the first iteration, it's a circular team process. Help me help you. Help me help you. That's not a, a shared process creating something together. So, exactly. So, so Ludwig, let's talk about CFX. How would you yes. describe that for, for your very old parents that, that don't understand anything? Oh, goodness. <laughs> there, there are so many aspects to CFX that I basically have to re-explain it every time we do a new pro project. Uh, but I like to consider it basically... Uh, any animation that isn't necessarily animated, so animation that's driven by parameters or by simulated properties or physical properties mm. uh, that can include uh, cloth, for example, uh, swaying in the wind or hair, uh, or in this case, muscle simulations and tissues, uh, skin deformations. Uh, anything that adds that little extra touch or, or weight to the animation that's really hard to do uh, by hand, mm. basically. Mm. So, so, so if you take the stag, for example, what, what kind of uh, CFX was involved there? Uh, the stag is actually a, a pretty good example of the kind of uh, dynamic process you have to, to take to, to planning CFX work, because CFX work can easily really run away with, uh, with cost and complexity. Mm. Uh, so for the, the stag in particular, we actually didn't use a full muscle system. So this was a great example of, a, of good communication between modeling and, uh, and CFX. Uh, in the case of the stag, we decided that the stag will only move so much in each shot, and it won't be especially dynamic. It will run away in one shot, and then it will stand, stand still for most of the show. Mm. Uh, so in the case of the stag, we would probably want to use CFX to add a bit of weight to the animation. Uh, and then we would probably use more modeling-specific techniques uh, to get into the nitty-gritty of muscle contractions mm. uh, and stuff like that that gets really apparent on the skin. Uh, so <laughs> the stag in itself is probably <laughs> one of the simpler examples of, of uh, where CFX would come in, where we just do like tissue simulations and fat simulations on top of that to get uh, you know some sort of gravity uh, to the already made animation. So, but if we talk about an animal like a bear, for example, that Magnus talked about, I, I know that you have worked on a muscle system for a bear. Uh, yes, how, how was absolutely. That? Uh, yeah, and that would that would constitute a more uh, more dynamic animal with different poses and stuff. So that would probably use the uh, the full repertoire, I suppose, of CFX. Uh, and in this case, again, it's super important to communicate where, what your intent is with modeling. So it would, of course, start 
uh, with us being really annoying and asking for extra models from from the modeling department. <laughs> uh, so in this case, we would have essentially a full ecorche of the animal created beforehand. So we would get muscles and uh, bones uh, and all of the inner materials mm. pre-modeled from uh, from the modelers uh, in conjunction with us, of course, depending on what we need. Uh, so that would be our starting point. And then much similar to, to Stephanie's process, we would kind of rig these up one by one and just uh, make sure that each muscle is attached to each bone, make sure each bone moves the way it should according to the rig. Uh, and yeah, kind of set up each muscle uh, to, to react according to what it should uh, in the physical reality, so to speak. We, we, which leads us to the obvious question, Magnus. Where do you find references for muscles on a bear? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that is uh, <laughs> that is always tricky. There, <laughs> there are some really good books on animal anatomy. Uh, hmm. like Elliot Goldfinger's Animal Anatomy, I think it's called. It's one of it's a classic. The, but the problem with those is they tend to be for uh, animals, especially just yeah. We have a side view of the muscles. But that's it. Mm. Uh, so it's figuring out the, um, uh, the center of the creature or the animal's anatomy is always trickier because that's usually where you don't have good images of, of it. Um, it's kind of similar. Like if you were to look at the anatomy of a human, you would see an image from the front and from the back. But it's not as mm. common to see images from the side. It, it's 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 a lot easier because there's a lot more interest in humans for some reason. My goal always was to even out everything to the point that everything is perfect. Uh, <laughs> but uh, for animals, it tends to be a side view, maybe a top view. But how, like an area that's always tricky is the pectorals of animals that's an area where we seldom have really good information on how it how it looks which can lead to either the chest looking too wide because you're starting to think of it as a human and making it flat and mm -hmm. wide as a human or it becomes too narrow because you're overcompensating in the other direction it's a lot of learning and studying anatomy yeah, but because I mean, Ludwig, if you have like you got all these modeled muscles, and then then you connect them, and then and then they are too wide or something, too thick or something, and then suddenly that animal looks like a Belgian blue when it moves. Or is it lots of back and forth <laughs> trying? To, Absolutely, yeah. like that. I think especially at the beginning of the process, uh, and at the end of the process, really. But at the beginning, it. There's a lot of back and forth, and you just kind of send the send a muscle shape to me, and I, I test it out with the simulation and try to achieve something that looks physically correct, and then we figure out that oh no, this didn't work at all. So we go back, Magnus gets to to apply some changes, and it comes back, and it's a lot of back and forth uh, on that level. And then at the end of the project, uh, the questions become completely different, but the same in a way. Uh, you would have your underlying muscle rig that would uh, apply this general physical feeling to the creature but to get those nice little details that kind of sell it uh the stuff that minus was talking about mm. like 
you have some tendons uh, tensing up in some areas and stuff, we would probably most likely bring in a modeler as well, just for their anatomical knowledge and kind of yeah bounce stuff back and forth and talk about how how the creature is is deforming even on a shot level. So like for a specific action, we would say, okay, should the neck be firing? Mm at this point in time like where should he be flexing in this motion uh, so yeah the, the communication never ends really <laughs> we like to keep the modelers on the hook until the very end of the project <laughs> but, but, but uh, assume that, that you have created this amazing uh, muscle simulation system uh, and then it's an animal with lots and lots of fur so, so it, you, you don't actually see the muscle system Answer me honestly uh, is it more rewarding to work on an animal with less fur, like a horse, for example, so that the viewer actually can see how all these beautiful muscles move. Uh, actually, we're we're not a big CFX team, so honestly, we would probably simulate the fur as well. So we're generally pretty happy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> True. But when it comes to preference, uh, I personally, I'm I just want the creature to feel real uh, and and just. The realism is what speaks to me, not necessarily the muscle system looking cool. Uh, so I, I love to cheat wherever I can just to to get physical results faster. Mm. Uh, so for me, I do believe that even if the character is filled uh, or covered with fur uh, and you can't really see any of the muscle contractions or whatever or skin flap mm. or what have you, uh, you can still feel that. Yeah, but because the fur, obviously the, the simulation of the fur is is affected by how the skin moves isn't it yeah it's all absolutely and, and you can definitely tell uh when when you've skimped out uh, on the underlying simulations uh th there is a physicality to a fully simulated creature even if you can't see individual muscles you you will feel uh, how the creature moves so it's still a rewarding process and then of course on a technical level i still love the process and i just I'm just happy when anything comes through, uh, like just looking at our final results, that's rewarding enough for me, <laughs> fully lit and all that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I personally, uh, I'm not too concerned about covering the work up. I just think it's for the good of the creature, really. Smoke and mirrors, guys. Welcome to the movie factory. When everything comes together, I mean, that sculpture, the 3D model, the rig, the, the FX, the CFX, the, 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 the muscles, everything, and it comes together with look, the animation, lighting, and company. And suddenly there is a convincing, realistic stag standing there in front of you on the screen, breathing, moving, it's alive. How does that feel uh, to see the final version of, of your animals, let's say? Good. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's amazing every time. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! <laughs> we we work with these like video game looking characters. It almost looks like a PS2 game uh, for most of the process. Mm. So just seeing the assets comes through and the the things that the lighters and look the artists do to the creatures, it's it's so rewarding every time. It never ceases to amaze me how how incredible things look once you once you get some light on it. And, and all that. Yeah. And you, Stephanie? Full, full heartedly agree to that. It's, uh, it's amazing. It's because we are working on those uh, gray shaded, not any specifics models uh, before they get their final touch, uh, seeing them then with the final touch. It's amazing. It feels really good. Um, yeah, yeah. 
but to add on that, it also for the rigging at least um, when I when I show it to friends and family, mm. it's very funny because every time I try to explain what I did, it's very difficult because as a rigger you can't really see what I did. So the question always is, oh, so you animated it? No. Okay, so you modeled it? <laughs> no. Okay, what what did you do then? Um, but. I know what I did, and I am always very, very happy about that. Uh, mm. It's just always a little bit difficult to convey to other people what the rigging process actually is. <laughs> I mean, many artists that I've talked with say that they are never are truly satisfied with their work, that, that there's always something little that they would have wanted to work a little bit more on. Uh, is it like that for you too? Yeah. 100%. I'm never happy. <laughs> it's always something like, well, what if you see him from this angle? Then he wouldn't look as good. One mm. more time, I could make something work. But yeah. And it's like when you're, uh, when I at home put up wallpaper, I see where it's not perfect, but no one else sees it. But I know that it's not good. And I just, <laughs> a bit like that, perhaps. Uh, yeah. 100%. <laughs> yeah. Like for me, for example, I have uh, I have still so much to learn and every single project is eye-opening in a way. Like I learn so much on every single project. And uh, after the project is done and I look at the finished project uh, product, I'm like, now I know that I should have done it this way. It mm. would have looked better or I would have uh, finished it faster if I did it this way. And I could have had more time to polish this thing. So afterwards, you're always wiser. And uh, then you just apply that to the next thing. But there is no roof to your knowledge. There is always more to learn. So you will always have this feeling of, if I had known before, I would have done it like this and this. And it would have been even better. Is that maybe one of the reasons why, why you guys love your work? <laughs> That <laughs> you always learn more. Yeah, hundred percent. Yes, I I think yeah to to the same point. Like I I do agree with you guys that it's uh you are never really satisfied. But me personally, like just the process is kind of satisfaction enough sometimes. Just seeing the asset come through and and knowing that that you successfully produced, even if it's just a pipeline or something, just mm. uh, that you you started with nothing and you end up with something. Uh, I feel like usually that that's satisfaction enough, and you know the parameters that that went into the creature. Uh, mm. So so it's a it's a balancing act. Of course, you'll see issues everywhere, uh, but you kind of have to tell yourself that this is the knowledge I was I had at this time, and uh, it's yeah. the best I could do. Plus, if you just give it half a year, then most things uh, get they tend to disappear with time, and and stuff <laughs> just looks kind of good after half a year. <laughs> Well, well, all the things you do look marvelous, and you should all be really proud of what you produce. I think. Thank uh, you. Uh, Magnus, but when you, I remember when you did that Moa bird for a David Attenborough production that I actually produced. Uh, we we got a message from from the scientists in New Zealand who had like researched Moa birds all their life. This extinct giant bird. And now when they saw the things that we had done uh, and actually saw how they looked and moved and everything, they burst into tears. They, they were so amazed. My God, I thought I never would see a real moa bird. And now I do, a living moa bird. And 
That's a really rewarding moment of doing VFX and animation where you can touch people like yeah. that. Oh, look at me. I'm rambling again. Well, I hope you folks enjoyed yourselves. So uh, what's your favorite CG animal in the Goodbye Kansas Digital Zoo? The funniest one you worked with? We did a, a crocodile for a museum. Yeah, the one for the National Museum yes, of Qatar. exactly. And I think that one is, that one was really fun. Uh, and it, I think that's one of the, that's one of the few cases where I was really satisfied at the end, actually. <laughs> no, I, I really like how that one came out. It, it uh, looked really nice on the screen, I think. But that is the favorite of mine. Yeah. You, Stephanie? I don't know. This is such a hard question. A bird, perhaps. Um, yeah, <laughs> I guess they—they they are like we had a show um, that I'm sadly not allowed to talk about yet. Mm. Uh, but we had to make I think six different types of birds for it. Mm. That was a lot of fun um, because they are very different, even though they have the same kind of setup-ish. <laughs> Uh, they are very, very different, and each bird needed different kind of attention. So, yeah, but I've worked on many different animals, like a sloth, a horse, stag, birds, and they're all so much fun. I don't, I don't know if I could pick out a favorite. I really don't. <laughs> you don't have to. <laughs> uh, and you, Ludwig? Oh, God. Uh I I love a lot of our animals for for very different reasons. Uh, I think personally one of my favorites is uh, that polar bear from Dancing on Ice. Oh. Uh, or rather, the creature itself isn't very technically complex, and and I can look back at it and think that well we should have done that better. Uh, but I think to me personally it was a nice little film. Like I I really like the the commercial mm. uh I, I think it looks really good and for its purpose it's it's really cool and it was one of my earlier projects i could buy kansas so it was uh, quite special in that way but i other than that i think from a cfx standpoint uh it's kind of a boring answer i guess but i am super excited for our upcoming stuff ah. <laughs> uh, the things we've been producing for the last year which hasn't been released yet uh I, I think is is some of our best stuff, uh, and I'm really really excited to, to be able to show that off. Well, that's uh, a cliffhanger. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but it, it's super fun. There's a lot of exciting things happening uh, in CFX development-wise and all that. So yeah, uh, it's gonna be cool. But but do you have any dream animal you would like to create? Anything you haven't done? Uh, me personally, I'm not entirely sure there was talks once of doing a an elephant mm -hmm. uh, for for a commercial back in the day uh, and it got me really excited and i actually started working on it uh, but then it got scrapped after a couple of weeks uh, so i think that's like my dream animal i would like to do a really like flappy huge elephant mm -hmm. uh, and and just kind of yeah get that out of my mind in a way <laughs> you magnus do you have a dream animal you haven't done? Yeah, I, one that I have, it's not a real animal, but it's re using realistic features. It would be a griffon, so eagle oh. and uh, lion. 
Um, and I'm guessing mm. Stephanie might be interested in reading something like that. Since she, yeah. <laughs> that sounds pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. So I, I really like cats, so the cat part is fun, and then adding the fantasy elements of uh, getting uh, wings and a uh, eagle's head on there and figuring out the how the anatomy should work uh, because it's mm. like wings are you are actually arms uh, in anatomy mm. wise so when you have a four-legged animal who's gonna have wings also that means you have to make up the anatomy so it, it's it's gonna work uh, and that's kind of a fun like it's something real but at the same time you need to figure out something unreal yeah yeah but would you in that case that then start with creating a, a skeleton of such an animal uh, I, I wouldn't start with a skeleton uh, because I think it's I like to uh, like the way I put it is working from the outside in so I think mm. we need to fi- I want to figure out the, the shape first so I know that like this looks correct from the outside, and then I'm putting a then I'm building a skeleton and putting that inside, and building muscles and doing all of that, and go, being okay to go back and adjust the outside form once I start to put muscles in and seeing like, hey, is this actually working? Can I get all the muscles I need in here, or do I need more space? Because if you start with a skeleton and then you go, oh, now I'm putting muscles on here, it tends to be a very uh, dry and boring uh, outer shape mm. because you're just building it mechanically almost. Yeah, and yeah. then you don't get as, ni- as nice of a rhythm or a flow to the shapes of the outer body. Uh, so I like to start with that, figure that out, and then adding the muscles and skeleton inside is a great help. Like even when we're doing like real animals that exist, it's always an even if we are not gonna do a full CFX workout where we need um, all of the skeleton and muscles, I like to to build it on my own anyways, just because it's a great check to see if like hey. Can I actually get the muscles in here, or do I need to adjust my model to fit uh, the anatomy inside of it? Well, I I hope there will be both griffins and huge elephants in the future for you. Uh, uh, Before we leave, I I know you will answer, sorry, I can't talk about it, but I have to ask, what, what projects are you involved in right now, without mentioning any titles? Yeah, not not too much to say other than it's uh, <laughs> it is, in this case it's a fully made up creature, which is you know mm. working on the design now, so it's, that is fun. But yeah, it's gonna be cool. I think it's gonna be really cool, really fun, Funny. really fun cinematic. But can't say anything about it. Now, I'm not at liberty to reveal the nature of my work. This secrecy pains me from time to time. And you, Stephanie? Um, I'm working on several projects, actually. Uh, not so many creatures. A bird, again. Ah. One, one is in there. 
um, but a lot of humans, ah. a lot, a lot, a lot of humans mm. um, for two different game cinematics. I guess that's as far as uh -huh. I am allowed to go. <laughs> but um, I'm very excited about it. That's it's going to be cool. Very yeah. cool. And you, Ludwig? Yeah, I, I think I'll just straight up steal both of those answers because <laughs> we're kind of involved in everything. Uh, so I'm working on the Magnus's creature as mm -hmm. well as those millions of humans and the cinematics, as well as some upcoming TV shows and stuff, which will be super exciting as well. So there's a lot happening. It sounds really exciting. And I'm sure we will talk again to discuss these things that we cannot talk about yet. Uh, many thanks for joining me today and shed some lights on this amazing work that you do. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you. It's super fun. And you out there, thanks for listening. Do mail us if you have questions or suggestions of topics we should discuss. You reach us at podcast at goodbyecancer.com. Until next time, goodbye, à bientôt, auf Wiederhören, wie hörsch.